comes from the book of Isaiah. We've been in the book of Isaiah through Advent, and we will wrap it up today, Christmas morning. From Isaiah chapter 60, just three verses. You are already rising, so you're obeying. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord, Yahweh, will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Merry Christmas to all you glorious saints shining the light of Christ. What a joy it is to show up. We worshiped together last night, and you all want to worship again this morning because you want more of the glory of Christ to shine on you. So let's pray to that end, that the glory of King Jesus would shine on us, and we would walk out of this place radiating his beauty. God, what wonderful news that the eternal Son of God became a man. And he lived perfectly righteous, holy, loving, kind, generous life. Yet the world rejected that. He was crucified, bearing the sin of the world. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. He poured out his spirit. He reigns now from heaven through your glorious saints. And you are here with us today. It, it seems impossible that the Son of God would be born with animals and laid in a manger seems impossible that the eternal God would dwell right here with us, that you would be glorified by our simple songs, by, by my weak preaching, by us going home and loving our families and shining the light to our neighbors. You would use weak, ordinary things like us to display your glory. God, help us to marvel at that truth and treasure it in our hearts and share that treasure with all that we come across today and in the week to come. That Christ may shine, that his glory may be known, and he may be worshipped. Amen. It seems like every Christmas song that we sing, if you're, if you're paying close attention to the songs we were just singing, have so, at least one line in them extolling the glory of King Jesus. Angels from the realms of glory. Angels we have heard on high sweetly singing o'er the plain. And the mountains in reply, what's their song? Gloria. Hark the herald. Angels sing, what glory to the newborn king. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove. What are the nations supposed to be proving? The glories of his righteousness. We sing these songs every year, 
belting out our glories with abandon to our risen king. Glory shown all around the shepherds at the announcement of Jesus' birth. At the, this news, multitudes of angels proclaim together the glory of God. Just a few days later, Mary and Joseph brought the newborn baby Jesus to the temple to meet Simeon, who proclaimed that he has seen God's glory. And this is going to be the glory that shines to Israel and the nations. But what is glory? Other than bright lights, maybe? We often use this word in religious circles, but it's hard to describe it in just normal, everyday words. We might say our favorite ice cream or a beautiful sunset is glorious. It's kind of a way we express our awe at something amazing. But it still doesn't really tell us what glory is. Can you touch it? Can you hold it? Can, is it just an abstract concept? Well, the word glory throughout the Bible often in, is used in its most basic meaning. It just means weighty, heavy, like Eli the priest who leaned back in his chair and fell backwards and his glory crushed him and killed him. His, his own weight killed him. Or it can be a little more metaphorical, like the glory of the Lord covering Mount Sinai. And what they saw was bright flashing lights, a thick cloud, and the earth shaking under thunder, his thunderous weight. Oftentimes the word glory is associated with light. It's a bright manifestation of God's weightiness. It's kind of like our modern word gravitas. It's, you see it and you're captured by it. And it, its enormity makes you feel small, but also draws you into it. So you might be able to summarize glory, God's glory, as God's significance made visible. God's significance is made tangible, something you can sense. And that's really what Christmas is all about. God, the eternal God who created all things, is making his significance known on earth by becoming one of us. Jesus' arrival was the most splendorous, dazzling, weighty, significant, beautiful thing to ever happen. But what's incredible about that is that it almost went completely unnoticed. The king of the universe has arrived in town and hardly anyone seemed to care. They didn't see the blinding light. They didn't hear the rolling thunder. They didn't feel the heaviness in the air. Just went about their business. You'd expect the arrival of a king to be surrounded with great fanfare, at least the acknowledgement, hey guys, there's a king born. Put that in your history books. But it was exactly the opposite. He was born to a poor family, made poorer by Caesar, wanting to declare his own glory by forcing him to go be counted for a census. He had to give up weeks of work, travel 70 miles through mountainous terrain to go live in a tiny village to be counted. But at least it's Joseph's hometown, so his family will welcome him there and help take care of them. But no, they didn't even, so many people were in town, they didn't even have room for him. Not in the main house, not in the guest quarters of the house. They put him out back with the animals. 
there among the beasts, with the weight of the Roman Empire bearing down on them, the fullness of God's glory arrives in the darkness, almost unnoticed. Only Mary and Joseph, a few shepherds, and some strange, mysterious, important guys from Persia notice the bright light covering Bethlehem. Everybody else slept. Everyone else went about their lives. Due to his own neuroticism, even though he couldn't see the light, Herod tried to snuff it out anyway. How is this possible? How can such gravity not be felt? How can such beauty not be admired? How can such brightness not be seen? How can such majesty not be celebrated? What's God going to do about all of this? This is what Isaiah looked forward to in his own prophecy. He longed for a day when God's glory would finally be revealed, just as he saw in his own calling. And it wouldn't kill people, but it would bring people to life. He foresaw one day a coming servant who would bring God's glory on earth. And for a time, it would be shrouded in darkness. But he would take the darkness upon himself and make it possible for others to shine that glory throughout the earth. And so with confidence in God's glory overcoming the darkness, he calls to the people to arise and shine the glory of Christ to the nations. Christmas is a call to us every single year to behold the birth, the arrival of God's glory rising upon you so that you will become God's visible representation of his glory here on earth. So let's look at how Isaiah looked forward into time to see the arrival of God's glory in chapter 60. He says in verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come, for the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. So the, the word glory, this glory that's arising on you, means God's significance made manifest. His superiority over all things, made visible by a bright light. You can experience his weightiness with your senses. In Christ's birth, this glory has arrived in real flesh that you could touch. Isaiah saw it as a light shining upon God's people, but they couldn't see it. And he has to shake them out of their slumber. Arise, wake up. They're asleep. They're dead. They can't see God's glory because God's judgment is upon them. That's been Isaiah's entire message throughout the first 39 chapters. It's this heavy emphasis on judgment, as Jake explained to us last week. Every single nation, including Israel, is wicked. The whole world walks in darkness, deserving God's judgment. Sure, there's threads of hope throughout that God is going to send somebody, some child unlike any other, to overcome the darkness. Maybe it would even be God himself. There's little hints at it. Who would be this rescuer? But then in chapter 40, the mood switches. Comfort, comfort, as Jake preached last week. Hope becomes the overarching theme. Hope gives way to comfort to those 
living through the consequences of sin. Isaiah calls the people with that comfort, come back, come back to God and become his servant again. But they can't. No matter how many times they repent, they fall back into sin again. They're stuck. And so in chapter 49, Isaiah looks and sees a new servant. God calls a new servant who takes upon himself the identity of Israel, the name of Israel, and he becomes the righteous servant who loves others. He gives hope to the oppressed. He becomes their rescuer. But in chapter 52, he's defeated by death. Like he himself is weak and despised and sinful. It pleased God to crush him as the atoning sacrifice for sin, though he did nothing wrong. Yet surprisingly, at the end of chapter 53, he's alive again. And throughout the rest of the book, here he is working to save God's people, to restore, rebuild Israel and the entire earth. So when Isaiah gets to chapter 60, he's looking into the future. At the arrival of this king... He's calling all who can hear to wake up. Now, now's the time to respond. All, you, all the things that you've been unable to do, the life you are supposed to live, the image you are supposed to bear, it's all now possible in the arrival of God's servant king in all of his glory. But as we see in the birth of Christ, people can't see it. He was born into a shroud of darkness. God's glory was veiled in a, in a poor family, in a tiny village, in a lonely stable, in a vulnerable child. Isaiah says in the beginning of verse 2, because they couldn't see it, because behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. God's glory is hidden in the darkness. It's just a bizarre thing to say. What is the nature of this darkness and this glory that this darkness can cover the glory of the God who created the universe? Is this darkness just something that comes in and out and it's not here now, but someday in the end it's going to come? Well, the way Isaiah is explaining it, He's trying to say that the darkness that's on us now is going to be there when the Messiah comes. Our ESV translates the verb as, as a future. Darkness shall cover the earth. But the Hebrew is not that specific. It has this tense of ongoing. It's an imperfect tense telling us that the darkness is actively covering the earth and will continue covering the earth until something dramatic is done to wipe it away. Clearly, the darkness is metaphorical, right? We can see lights. We turned the switches on and the lights came on. The sun still shines. The moon reflects it. The stars twinkle at night. We're not talking about actual darkness. We're talking about spiritual darkness. It's symbolic of blindness, ignorance of God's ways, rebellion against his created purposes. Isaiah is telling us that in the time that he anticipates the Messiah's arrival, the sun is dark spiritually. 
The earth is covered in darkness. It's just the condition of humanity. All of us born into this darkness. Psalm 5 verse 9 says, There is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Psalm 143 verse 2, No one living is righteous before God. Isaiah himself said in chapter 1, The whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint, from the sole of the foot to the top of the head. There's no soundness at all here, there. God told Isaiah when he called him in Isaiah chapter 6, I'm sending you to preach to a people who can't hear. You're going to show truth to people who can't see. That is darkness. Thick darkness, Isaiah tells us. It's a darkness so thick it penetrates the soul. It it's, starts in the heart. It dulls the senses. It corrupts the will. It contaminates everything it touches. It's a darkness, Isaiah says in chapter 5, that gets everything backwards. It can't tell up from down, right from wrong, good from evil, sweet from bitter. It infects all of us from Adam's fall right up to the time of Christ when nobody could see the glory of his birth even to today. This darkness is everywhere. Yes, our city, as much good as we think we do in this city, this city is covered in darkness. Our nation bumbles around in deep darkness. God has put his glory on display everywhere. His word is glorious. His people gathering together is glorious. Psalm 19 says the heavens and creation declare the glory of God. Every pleasure, comfort, joy, success that you experience is pointing you to God's glory. And Paul says in Romans chapter 1, we suppress this truth in unrighteousness. We exchange God's glory for lesser glories in creation. But we were made for glory. It's in our nature to pursue glory and to proclaim glory and reflect glory. But we de instead choose to pursue false glory. Our culture is just obsessed with lesser glories, the, the glories of Self, of sex, of politics, of medicine, of entertainment and education and career advancement. We put all of our hope for joy and peace and comfort and safety in these things. And we go out in the world and proclaim how wonderful they are and condemn people who don't join us in their worship. God tells us, here's what's truly glorious. And we think it's boring. We're uninterested. We're so unimpressed by God's glory that we try to brighten it up with all kinds of other glories added on top of it. When we visited the town of Bethlehem, the literal town of Bethlehem, just a couple of weeks ago, we stood at the place where they say Jesus, little baby Jesus, was laid. They claim this is the manger. It's incredible to stand there, but then you look around and you realize this is supposed to be this ordinary, dirty place, and this can't possibly be glorious. So what did they do? They decorated it with all kinds of marble 
to make it look nice. And statues, carved figurines, and candles, and paintings, and shrines all over. It's not just something the ancients did over there on the other side of the world. We do the same thing in America. Evangelicals, we're, we're told that God, God's people gathering every Sunday is the most glorious thing you can experience. That the, the gathering of God's people is a glorious city on a hill shining into the darkness. But... This doesn't look so glorious, does it? We're rather ordinary, weak people trying to eke out our old hymns. Sometimes we don't even know them. We're learning. And so we think, let's, let's spice it up a little bit. We got to add some glory to this. Maybe we need more comfortable seats. We need a little more peppy music with a couple of drum sets would help. Louder speakers, some, some comedic routines up front, maybe some fun activities. That would be glorious. It's because we're more dazzled by the lights of the world than we are by the God whose glory dwells with us. That is some thick darkness. But Jesus came to rescue us from it. Isaiah says in the second half of verse 2, but... Always but God, but Yahweh. Those are good words. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. <clears throat> God's glory is going to rise in that darkness and reflect from you, his people. By nature, we were born for a capacity, with a capacity for glory, that's what being made in the image of God is all about. From the beginning, God intended for all of you to be reflectors of his glory, of his significance. Everything good, important, weighty about God, you were made to show off to the world. You have no glory of your own, and sin has scrubbed God's glory from you. But you have such an incredible capacity for glory, more than anything else in the world. Yes, Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. And if you've seen any of the pictures from the new James Webb Space Telescope, that sky declares a glorious God. But even more so, God made you, you to declare his glory to live his glory, to sing his glory, to spread his glory, to enjoy it and create with it and rule the world with it. Sin has plunged us into deep darkness and it keeps trying to fill our glory void with all kinds of counterfeits that will not satisfy. Sin is like this black hole for glory. Christ comes and he, he reveals God's glory in our darkened hearts. We're so caught up in the gravity of sin, its black hole, that it just gets sucked in and we forget about it. So nobody can see it. God's glory seemed veiled in Christ's birth, shrouded in humility and poverty and vulnerability. But he intended to come into our humility in poverty and vulnerability and show off his glory. His glory is greater than the darkness. 
Christ will make God's glory fill the earth. So he lived a perfect life. He showed off every minute of his life how good God is, how kind and generous God is. He showed off his power and his teaching God's glory. Still the darkness rejected it. It takes more than simply being kind to other people for them to see God's glory. It takes more than teaching them the right way to do things. It's going to take more than just setting a good example for others to follow. Jesus needed to destroy the black hole of sin and death. And he did it by letting the darkness overcome him. His glory seemed to be overtaken by the darkness in his own death. And it looked like we would be trapped in our darkness forever. Satan laughed, thinking that he snuffed out the Lord of glory. And every time something terrible happens in your life, you think Satan's laughing at you, that you have failed, that you're too weak, that God's glory is not with you. But Jesus' death was just him diving into the black hole to fill it with his eternal glory. The only thing weightier than a black hole is the glory of God himself. God's glory became more clear in his own resurrection. He raised Jesus from the dead to say, God's glory is infinite. And he put an end to that hole of sin and death. Darkness can't overcome light. That's not how light and dark work. That's not how God made the world. Jesus just took the darkness with him into the grave. He left it there and he rose from the dead to show that his glory is weightier than all of creation and all of its sin. He went even further though. Isaiah looks forward to. Jesus poured out his spirit, the spirit of his glory on all who believe in him so that his significance can be experienced, not just 2,000 years ago if you're near him, but everywhere, all the time, not just through one man, but through all his people. Isaiah said, God's glory has risen, and now it can be seen upon you who have put your faith in him. It took resurrection for that glory to be revealed. Even though they walked with Jesus, the disciples. They couldn't really see the glory until after the resurrection. They couldn't reflect it themselves until the Spirit came down upon them. Then they went out and they did what Isaiah saw. That this glory isn't just for your own enjoyment, but it's to make the significance of God known throughout the earth. You and the disciples and every believer throughout history was called to reflect it into the world. Jesus' coming, being born on earth, was one way that God meant to show his glory on this planet. But that was the start of spreading that glory to all of his people. He ascended to heaven to send his spirit so that the same glory that the disciples got to experience can be seen by you and through you. This is what Isaiah says in verse 3. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Through you, God is going to restore glory to all the earth. 
This good news is meant to extend beyond you to the ends of the earth. It's the pattern we see from the beginning of the New Testament right throughout church history. The weightiness of God is drawing people in. You saw that in his birth. Wise, powerful, influential men from the east came to see God's glory when Jesus was born. When Jesus died on the cross, it was a Roman centurion in the middle of that darkest moment in history who said, surely this is the son of God. <clears throat> in Acts chapter 10, Peter takes the good news to another Roman citizen in a Roman city. And this Gentile comes to know Christ's glory. Paul took his journeys through Asia and Macedonia and Greece and Rome seeing thousands of people, thousands of Gentiles beholding, delighting in, reflecting the glory of God. Just as Isaiah foresaw, the nations coming to Christ and his light shining from his people. Even throughout history, ever since the apostles, kings and nations have trembled and humbled themselves before the majesty of Christ's glory. They've recognized that Jesus is far more significant than their own pathetic glory. His authority far weightier than theirs. God loves to humble kings and save the nations through the ordinary, humble worship from people like you and me who are dazzled by Christ. And we follow his commands to show off his glory even if the world doesn't think it's so glorious. So how does he expect us to shine that glory in our lives? We must, as I've said repeatedly, remember the gospel. Remember, Jesus' death and resurrection is where God's glory shined most brightly. And we need to be people of that truth. We need to arrange our lives around that truth. The words that come from our lips must be centered around death and resurrection and Christ's glorious reign over all things. We're a people who aren't afraid of death, or we shouldn't be, because we see God raising people to eternal life. We can easily say no to the false gospels and false glories of this world because we are so enamored with the glory of Christ. We prioritize things in our lives that put Jesus in front of our eyes constantly so our hearts can be more captured up into his glory and we can become more radiant to spread it, more pure to the world. You gotta remember that your sin is a black hole, stealing and absorbing glory. So if you want to more effectively shine the glory of Christ to your neighbors, your family and friends, you need to kill sin in your life. Confess it to your brothers and sisters in Christ and let them help you nail it to the cross so it could be buried in the grave forever. And then look to his resurrection to lift you out of the black hole. so you can properly reflect his glory. Remember, the world will not be impressed by what God says is glorious. Your faithfulness to God reflecting his glory is not measured in worldly ways. How many people like you, how successful you become, 
how healthy you are, how much money you have, how influential you are. Those are worldly ways to fill the glory void. No amount of kindness or loving your neighbor or healing disease or educating the next generation is going to help people see God's glory and delight in it because they are still in thick darkness. Your job is to rise each day and shine the glory of Christ and leave the eye opening to him. So what does that specifically look like? Remember that glory means displaying, making tangible the weightiness of God, his significance. The brightness of your shining is directly correlated with your submission to Christ, your immersion in his word, your connection to his people. Just like two flames brought together, make one bigger flame. How many little candles are we bringing together to shine his glory into this world when we gather regularly? We must die to reflecting any other kind of glory and rise to show off his glory. He says right at the beginning, he gives us a manual for what this ordinary glory, glorious image bearing looks like. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. Find a marriage partner, have some kids, cultivate the ground, build something, help people flourish in this world. Genesis 2 shows men being providers and protectors. And women, partners in this great image-bearing work by being life givers and nurturers and beautifiers. These might be ordinary, mundane things to the world, maybe even oppressive in their eyes, but that's because they're in the darkness. God says this stuff is glorious. Paul further reminds us in his letters, priori the priorities of glory re reflecting are regular worship. Glad you're here because I see Christ's glory in you. gathering with your church family, working diligently in your workplace as unto the Lord, hospitality from your home, marriages that model Christ's love for the church and the church's submission to him, homes that train up the next generation of faithful Christian witnesses. Jesus tells us the great commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Therefore, go and call the nations to obedience. All who are in Christ, young or old, rich or poor, married or single, are called to find some ordinary ways to stand firm on Christ's priorities and let his glory call them. Call the nations, call the kings and governors, presidents and legislators, city councils and mayors, CEOs and boards. Call them all to repentance. Your ordinary glory shining speaks as a righteous conscience to the world that there is a king who reigns over them. And if that looks dull and boring, burdensome or restrictive, it's not because it isn't glorious, but because you're still in a world shrouded in thick darkness. Don't be pressured by the world's, don't be tempted by the world's pressure to find glory in some big, fa fancy, exciting thing in the world. Don't believe that glory can only be experienced in power and influence. 
Don't try to add what God, to what God says is glorious. Nothing is bigger, more important, more powerful, more influential than Jesus. No message is more glorious, weighty than Jesus dying on a cross and rising from the dead. Nothing shines his glory brighter than the saints gathering to worship him and be transformed by his glory into his image from one degree of glory to another so that when we leave this place, we take the glory into the world. So rise this morning and shine the glory of Christ to all the nations. Let's pray. God, help us to worship Jesus all this Christmas day. Send us out of here radiating the glory of Christ. That when we go have lunch, when we go open gifts, when we go sing or take naps or watch football games, whatever we do this afternoon, the thing that would dazzle our hearts the most would be that the God of the universe dwells with us and in us. And we have his word to us. And we have his spirit's presence among us with these brothers and sisters, God, be glorified in us. Help us to reflect your glory into this world. Help us to know that there is nothing more weighty than our God who rules the world with truth and grace. Amen.